The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Breaking news, Russia attacking and seizing control of Europe's largest nuclear power plant. There were reports of a fire at the massive facility. Stocks sliding on the back of that terrifying attack. Futures here, they are lower. Stocks down around the world. The spike in energy costs continuing, oil at multi-year highs, and Europeans set to feel more pain over natural gases rise. Outside of Ukraine, Amazon reportedly turning up the heat on the federal government trying to get its deal to buy MGM done. And your exclusive weekly look at the biggest insider buys. And this week, it is all about the consumer buying on the dip. It is Friday, March 4th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Hope you're having a good start to your Friday. Let's get a check right now on the markets and your money to see how we may round out this wild and nerve-wracking week. Stock futures right now, they are down across the board, down about seven-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ futures off the most on a numbers basis, down 110, just about eight-tenths of 1% for tech stocks. All this coming off more declines for stocks on Thursday. However, all things considered, the markets may have actually held up fairly well this week so far. We have today to go, but overall holding up okay. Why do I say that? Well, the S&P small cap 600 is actually higher this week. It's up about a half a percent. Of course, it has been very rough for big cap technology stocks, as you know. And this may be your market stat of the morning, if not the week. Only 15 NASDAQ 100 stocks are higher so far this year, and 25% of that index are down more than 20% year-to-date. So it has been, needless to say, a rough year for investors in the higher-growth technology names. Bond yields on the move, and they are on the move back down. They are lower right now. The 10-year yield is back below 1.8%. Do not forget, we have the monthly payroll number out later on this morning, And the expectation that the Fed, regardless of what is happening in Ukraine, will raise rates at its March 16th meeting. And of course, unless something completely unexpected occurs with the American economy, we still have two weeks to go. But the story this week, of course, in the markets has been oil and gas. Crude oil coming into this morning up 17 percent just this week. Natural gas up about 5 percent. Trading right now, oil is actually down a couple of bucks from its intraday highs yesterday at just under $109 per barrel here in the States. It is up off its close, but it is down from that intraday peak. All right, let's go now around the world. European markets, they're absolutely tanking on the back of Russia's continued offensive in Ukraine or the fire at a nuclear power plant there absolutely terrifying the world. Rosanna Lockwood is in London with our newsroom with a lot of red on the screen behind her. Rosanna. 
That's absolutely right, Brian. Very tense and worrying news this morning for all of us here in Europe and around the world. Let's start in Asia because that is what was open when this news about this Russian attack on Europe's largest nuclear power plant took place. Uh, you had the Shanghai Composite, for, for example, closing off around a percent. Now, the Hang Seng, one of note here, the situation in Hong Kong regarding COVID does continue to be concerning. So that also affects things here off by two and a half percent. The Nikkei 225 plumbing lows. We're seeing lows in Asia, uh, plumbing to sort of 16 month lows, in fact. The ASX 200 has been something of an outperformer, given its miners, given its energy stocks in there, but still off by half a percent. Let's give you a look at Europe, though. As uh, Brian mentioned, they're absolutely tanking this morning. The FTSE 100 off by 3%. The CAC Cajon the same, a bit more than that. In fact, the FTSE MIB has been the laggard for this session in Italy, keeping a close eye in particular on lender Unicredit under some serious pressure. In fact, we've been keeping an eye on banks generally and their exposure to Russia throughout the week. Uh, that sector performing particularly badly, but in fact, red across the board in all sectors. Now, the DAX in Germany has also been heavily exposed to all types of headline risk coming out of Ukraine. It is off just under 3.5% as well this morning. Really, there is no respite. It's a total risk-off mood in the equities markets this morning and completely understandable given the news we've had overnight. Yeah, certainly is, Rosanna. And, and the markets certainly are feeling that pain as well. Rosanna Lockwood in London, thank you very much. All right, so let us now get some more on that still-developing story in the fire at that nuclear power plant in the southeastern part of Ukraine. This is Europe's largest nuclear facility and one of the 10 biggest in the world. Now, officials say that the fire, which actually broke out at a training building at the complex, not at complex itself, has been extinguished and that the plant is secure. However, it appears that Russian forces have taken it. They add that one reactor was damaged and that plant was seized by the military. The International Atomic Energy Agency says it has been told by Ukraine that the fire had not impacted essential equipment. All reactors are safe and there had been no change in radiation levels. The agency says it is putting its emergency response forces in full response over the incident. In the meantime, U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm says... She spoke with Ukraine's energy minister about the situation and that the plant's reactors are being safely shut down. The U.S. also activating its nuclear response team. The White House confirming that President Biden did speak with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky last night about the situation. And U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson also speaking with Zelensky this morning, telling him that he would seek an emergency U.S. UN rather Security Council meeting on Russia's attack on that massive facility. For more now on this story, let us bring in Radiant Energy Fund Managing Director Mark Nelson. He advises nonprofits and industry about nuclear energy. Mark, uh, welcome to the program. It is a scary time. It is often a confusing time. Uh, I tweeted out last night based on your notes and some other information that whatever happened, this is not likely to be a Chernobyl-like situation because they are very different types of nuclear reactors. They were built very differently in plain English. Can you explain what that difference may be and what that risk may or may not actually be? Sure, Brian. Thanks for having me. So the Chernobyl nuclear plants were a totally different design, as you said, from Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which is the plant in question here. At Zaporizhia, there is a really tough thick reinforced concrete dome and building that goes all around each reactor. There's six all lined up. 
those reactor domes, those buildings are extremely tough, very hard, designed to both hold in extreme pressures from the plant if necessary, but also protect from impacts in the, from the outside. So that's, I think, really important to know. They're built like extremely strong tortoise shells. They are, they are sealed up and they are secure on the outside. And luckily, it looks like this fire that, of course, terrified and captivated the world last night, Mark, was at an administrative building on site, not the plant itself. And you also highlight that it's important for us in the media because we want to get it right. And there's a lot of information and disinformation going around that there's a big difference between saying something about a fire at a, quote, plant and some kind of an issue with the reactor, correct? These are very different, but important differences. Yes. And I, I'm so sorry to mention that. And when you were rolling through the news, we heard that a, a reactor was damaged. Fortunately, we've heard from the IAEA, from Director Grossi. He's been in contact with plant staff on the ground there. The reactor was not damaged. The reactor building, it sounds like, was not damaged. Uh, we're going to be able to see more in coming days when more videos and pictures come out of the site. But yes, the reactor is a shiny little vessel deep within the big concrete dome that protects it that was never in danger of being under fire. Now, Mark, I, I still would not want to shoot guns or light fireworks near a shed full of gasoline cans. And I think you understand sort of my analogy there, which is you have Russian forces, we do know this, firing at or into the facility with high-powered weaponry, perhaps even some small artillery, bomb-type fires. What exactly would be the risk of that type of activity around this type of facility? So, first of all, um, one of the many tests that plants have to undergo, including the Ukrainian plants, which worked carefully with international regulators and European safety officers, is to be able to survive flying missiles, for example, from cyclones, tornadoes, from severe storms, and, and yes, from external explosions in the plant. Although those rules don't explicitly discuss plants going through wartime and being captured, in effect, if you had any industrial facility designed to survive unpleasant situations like this, it would be nuclear plant. Now, the risk for me is not in an explosion like Chernobyl or a, some kind of violent change suddenly in the plant. My concern would be about the flow of cooling water upon the plant shutting down. In fact, if there's a bomb blast or shell, the plants will automatically shut down the fact that we had one reactor at 60% power ride through the entire night and now be captured evidently by Russian forces indicated yeah. nothing shook the ground enough for shutting off the plant. As long as the cooling water is maintained, the plants stay cool. Yeah, and, and very quickly, the winds here blow from the west to sort of the northeast. So if there were some sort of radioactive event, it would actually blow the winds, as I understand it, into Russia, the likelihood, Mark, in your best estimation, and I understand it's a bit of a guess, is that Russia would want, if they take it, this plant intact and operable. It is one-fifth of Ukraine's total power production. 
I would agree with that, Brian. Nuclear plants are sort of the ultimate power source. They take almost no fuel, um, almost impossible to mess them up, as we just saw and captured during wartime. I think it's unlikely the Russians would want anything but a perfect condition nuclear plant if they were going to capture it. All right. Mark, listen, it's a scary time. You provided a little bit of comfort around it. We certainly appreciate your knowledge and insight. Thanks for getting up early. Uh, scary situation nonetheless. Mark, thank you. Take care. Thanks, Brian. All right, we are just getting started here on a Friday morning. And when we come back, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and fellow administrators gathering for an emergency meeting. We are live at NATO. Putin's war leading to another stunning jump in shipping costs. We'll show you just how much they have risen coming up. And then, as investors gear up for the monthly jobs number and what it might mean for the Fed's rate plan, we'll show you how stocks are reacting. Futures down across the board, oil up a touch, Europe down a lot. And we are back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back and good Friday morning. It's back down to the markets and your money. And it looks like another rocky trading day taking shape. Investors sort of grappling with the breaking news that we just talked about. The ramping up of Putin's war and the attack on that Ukrainian nuclear power plant. Now, Ukraine, of course, just one part of what is really kind of a three-headed hydra that is impacting your money with inflation and the Fed's rate hike and balance sheet plans also in the background. Let's try to tie it all together and bring in Aaron Gibbs, Chief Investment Officer at Main Street Asset Management. Aaron, it's good to have you back on. I got to imagine your clients are nervous. What are you telling them? How are you sort of comforting them And what is in very many ways, monetarily, militarily, globally, a scary time. It is, and, and uh, certainly we have a lot of clients that feel it. Uh, we try to put it in perspective of looking at just how extreme uh, the market fear is, um, and it's it's not necessarily a time to make any big changes or, or moves if you don't have specific cash needs. Um, and one of the examples we use is, is looking at the VIX. Um, anytime the VIX is over 30, um, it's in that extreme fear period. Um, and generally, those are not times that you want to make uh, big changes or, or really you know, cash out of the market. Um, certainly, we do have clients that just need to get out in order to sleep. Uh, and so we accommodate those. But for the most part, we, we try to tell them this looks to be, again, another uh, very quick and volatile period where um, we can see changes quite rapidly. Uh, and 
We since February 14th, uh, the VIX really started breaking above 30. We've had four days in a row where it's above 30. Um, that's a little long in the tooth. Um, that's sort of uh, a rather extended period of being in extreme fear. Uh, and so we, we'd like to say that we're eventually going to come to an end, um, though we still see a lot of uh, you know, yeah. nervousness. And obviously, the headlines are going to keep people up. Um, but markets don't tend to stay in that range for that long of a period. You know, this isn't like 20, even 15 years ago, Aaron, where if you wanted to sell a lot of stock, you called somebody, they could sort of talk you down off that ledge. Now you just go on your computer, your, your phone, your tablet, and you hit sell. It's very easy to be reactionary in this type of environment. How do we pull back and have people sort of see the bigger picture. If you loved stocks three months ago, they're much lower now, unless it's oil and gas, of course, uh, but yet you hate stocks now. I mean, how do we add some rationality to what is unfortunately an increasingly irrational world? Right. And, and so, one, A, looking at just how um, much selling is going on, looking at valuations. Um, ultimately, we haven't seen uh, really significant changes in earnings perspectives for the year. Um, yes, even if oil is more expensive, that does not bring the entire U.S. economy down. Um, certainly, you know, we had inflation worries, but uh, we're still looking very healthy when it comes to, to profit growth. Uh, and, and we also look at uh, we, we look at what the Treasury yield is doing, and we see that the 10-year um, has actually been dropping quite, quite significantly since mid-February, um, which is saying that there has been a lot of risk-off, a lot of panic, selling out of equities, buying into bonds, pushing those yields down, even when we're expecting to see higher inflation. And so we use that as an example of, do you really want to be part of this You know, selling at the bottom, panic selling? buying into bonds, you know, getting those, uh, you know, pushing the prices higher, or do we want to just wait it out? Just take a month, take a breather. What's um, the answer, Aaron? What is the answer to that? <laughs> we try to say take a breath, take a breather, and take one month. I think we're going to see a lot of uncertainty removed from the market after the Fed meeting. And so we're saying at least wait until March 14th when we see those Fed hikes. We're going to have a lot more certainty about what's going to be ahead for the year. Uh, and so just put it on pause and maybe turn off the TV. Yeah, well, don't do that. But step away from the computer, <laughs> step away from the, from that phone app, uh, whatever your broker may be, and, and just sort of take a deep breath in a scary time. Aaron Gibbs, really appreciate your views. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend, Aaron. Take care. Thank you. All right, still on deck. Some of your morning's top stories outside of Putin's war, including Amazon turning up the heat on the feds to try to get its deal for MGM done. Futures, they're down. Dow futures off now 250, oil up again, and we are back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, welcome or welcome back. And let's get a check on the headlines outside of the Ukraine war and the markets, including Amazon, trying to force the federal government's hands over its deal for MGM. Bertha Coombs is here with more on that and your other key headlines. Bertha, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Amazon is looking to force a decision from the FTC regarding the company's $6.5 billion acquisition of MGM. Move could make it more difficult for the agency to take any antitrust action before Amazon completes the deal, which would be the second largest in the company's history. Amazon has certified that it provided all the information requested by antitrust investigators, meaning the agency now has a deadline of mid-March to file a legal challenge. Sony and Honda are teaming up to develop and sell electric vehicles. The two companies saying they will form a joint venture this year and aim to sell the first model in 2025. Sony will be focusing on the mobility service platform, while Honda will, of course, manufacture the actual model. And Spirit Airlines planning to open new crew bases in Miami and Atlanta as it looks to move into areas that are strongholds for bigger players like Delta and American Airlines. The budget airliner says also looking for solutions to its staffing shortages, which led to hundreds of flight cancellations over the holidays. Brian Spirit launched service from Miami back in October, where it now has 30 nonstop routes. That compares to 300 daily departures that American Airlines has in Miami. So a lot of competition to make up there. And I don't know if you've been flying, Bertha. I have a lot. I'm flying tomorrow. I'm flying Sunday. I'm flying Wednesday, which is be nice to these airline. You should always be nice anyway, but they've got a tough job. People have lost their minds. Just kill them with kindness, right? Just be kind. Yeah. Yeah, I've also seen signs outside of stores where people say, look, we're short staffed. Be nice to our folks. Don't yell at them so we don't lose any more. Yeah, yeah. you're going to wait longer for things. Just deal with it. It's the way it is. Be kind. Bertha, we'll see you in a bit. Thank you very much. All right. Well, the energy sector, of course, very much in focus right now with everything going on in the world, Ukraine, inflation, demand, etc. And pretty much everybody in the world who is anybody is gathering next week for the 40th annual Sierra Week conference in Houston. And we will be there for that event as well, speaking with some of the biggest names in the energy right now. This is our lineup. This is not a complete list. But we've got the CEOs of Hess, Conoco, Occidental, Pioneer Natural Resources, Chenier, Tellurian. We've got State Department officials as well. You can see our complete coverage here on Worldwide Exchange all day on CNBC, Monday and Tuesday, including a very special 6 p.m. special on Tuesday night, completely devoted to energy. We have got a huge week coming up next week. All right. Still on deck right here on this show, more on the breaking news around that nuclear power plant in Ukraine, NATO members gathering, weighing their response, if any, the Russia's latest assault. Steve Sedgwick is live at NATO HQ with what leaders are telling him. We are back in a moment. Futures, they're down.
Russia reportedly seizing control of Europe's largest nuclear power plant, this after firing at the facility, raising global fears of a major nuclear accident. NATO leaders gathering for an emergency summit. But when will they take actual action? We are live at NATO HQ with the latest. Markets on edge, stock futures down, investors around the world hitting sell. This is oil and other commodities keep marching higher. It is all happening on this Friday, March 4th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, welcome or welcome back and good Friday morning, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Let us get right now to a check of your Friday money and see how this may round out the wild and nerve-wracking week that we have had. And stock futures indicating that markets are likely to fall again today, although they are off their lows. NASDAQ, Dow, and S&P futures all down, but only about one or two-tenths of one percent. So all said, they are not down as much as one may have feared, certainly not down as much as the global markets, much of Asia and Europe falling 2 to 3%. Bond yields also on the move. The 10-year yield actually moving down overnight. It is back below 1.8%. Just a reminder, we do have the monthly payroll number out later on this morning. Probably won't matter much, if at all, to the Federal Reserve. Likely, according to Powell and testimony, they have already made up their mind about rate hikes. But you never know. So that monthly jobs number is out at 8.30 a.m. this morning. But, of course, the story this week, really this year, has been oil, gas, and commodities. you got crude oil up 17% this week coming into this morning. Natural gas trading here is up about 5%, although much more around the world. In fact, let's get to that, because while we are paying still under $5 for natural gas, the situation is far worse in Europe. Gas futures, this is spot trading, so it's not what they're paying outright, but if you buy it on the spot market, this may be your price. Spot futures trading in the Netherlands, look at that. They have spiked again. They are just absolutely soaring, which means consumer and power users are going to have to pay a lot more if they are buying natural gas on the spot market. And that will impact a lot of things, things like chemical fertilizers and food costs. The cost of aluminum to make electricity is super expensive. Cost of plastics, the cost of rubber for car tires, cost of so much matters to oil and gas. And Speaking of fertilizers, if you remember, back in September, we talked to you about the impact of higher natural gas prices on fertilizers in companies like CF Industries and Mosaic. There's the tweet. And since we highlighted this issue, shares of CF Industries and Mosaic are up 80 and 60 percent, respectively. Good news for investors, bad news for farmers and consumers. Maybe, hopefully, one more reason to watch WEX every day in sight that you might not hear or see anywhere else. No joy, by the way, in being correct on that outlook. All right, now to the very latest out of Ukraine and Putin's war. Officials announcing overnight that the fire at that nuclear power plant has thankfully been extinguished. The blaze breaking out at a training facility on the complex during heavy Russian shelling. However, while the plant may be physically safe, it does appear that Russians have taken control of it. And that facility accounts for about 20% of all of Ukraine's power and electricity production. In the meantime, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken kicking off a series of meetings across Europe with an emergency sit-down with fellow NATO foreign ministers today. Steve Sedgwick is live at NATO HQ in Brussels, Belgium, and he's been speaking with leaders there, and he joins us now. Steve, good morning or good afternoon. What have you learned? 
Yeah, I've learned a lot, Brian. Actually, I, I think I've just spoken to about a dozen of the key foreign ministers at NATO here as they arrived for this meeting as well. Uh, we're learning that they're absolutely disgusted and in shock, to be honest, at what the Russians uh, have done surrounding the taking of this uh, nuclear power station as well and the risks associated with that. Jens Stoltenberg, who is the Secretary General of NATO, as you're aware, said this just demonstrates the recklessness of the war, uh, the importance of Russia withdrawing its troops as well. Uh, the aggression is creating a new situation in Europe and uh, we remain firm on Article 5. Article 5 is where if any of our members are attacked, that means you're attacking all of us as well. And that's a very, very important point. The reason why we're here is because of Article 4, Brian, and not to wish to get into the weeds too much. Article 4 is when a nation in NATO feels threatened because of its independence, its sovereignty or its territory. Uh, eight of those nations basically called this as well, including the Baltics, where Secretary Blinken will be going uh, on this tour at the start of next week as well. As far as uh, Secretary Blinken is concerned as well, he said NATO is a defensive alliance. We do not want conflict. But if it comes to us, we are ready for it. But also, I thought staggering comments from Josep Borrell, Brian, I'll just get this one out because he's the high representative of foreign affairs for the EU. He said nothing is off the table when I asked him about whether they would cut off Russian gas and oil to Europe. Is there anything, Steve, that is off the table in terms of a response to not on the table, but is there anything that they will absolutely not consider? I think at the moment there are there are two or three things as well. One is despite President Zelensky pleading to be part of NATO, and he's mentioned that ever since he was elected a couple of years ago. By the way, I was there the night he was elected. I managed to speak to him uh, in Kiev as well. It, that's just not on the table at the moment. Uh, the sending of fighters uh, to Ukraine as well, that seems to be something that NATO has balked at so far. Whether it remains on the table after the most recent events, that remains to be seen. But this no-fly zone, it's something very contentious. And I see a lot of quasi-experts saying we've got to have a no-fly no zone uh, over Ukraine. But the reason why the White House, the reason why a lot of NATO foreign ministers I've been speaking to say we do not want to enact a no-fly zone over Ukraine, that means you'd have NATO pilots enforcing that against Russian forces, potentially Russian forces firing at NATO pilots, NATO pilots firing at Russia. That is de facto war between NATO and Russia. And that is why at the moment a no-fly zone is off the table, Brian. Steve Sedgwick, who is live at NATO HQ in Brussels, and we are glad, Steve, that you are there. Thank you very much. Well, of course, folks, energy has been a massive story for really the last few months and has only accelerated during the crisis. Oil and gas prices are spiking since last summer, and Putin's war only making it worse, sending oil back above $100 per barrel. But this is not just an oil and gas story. Shipping rates are also soaring, as many ships around the world have been taken offline because of connections to Russian owners and sanctions. There are so many different and important angles here. Joining us now is Kate Richard, founder and CEO of Warwick Investment Group, managing about $2 billion in assets for U.S. and international clients across energy, real estate, entertainment, and Randy Givens, group head of the Energy Maritime Shipping Equity Research Group at Jefferies. Kate, let us begin with you. Uh, you're there in Oklahoma City. By the way, we really appreciate you getting up super early there is this cry. I hear it on Twitter every day. Why aren't U.S. producers filling the gap? Why aren't they drilling more wells? Why aren't they producing more oil? You argue they might, but this is not something you can just turn on overnight. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that this is an industry that's really been left for dead over the past seven years since the 2014 volatility with Saudi 
Secondly, uh, it's a question of will. It's not a question of resource. Um, but, you know, we've had a huge boardroom and C-suite change over the past decade in this sector. The CEOs in the sector have been brought in to grow cash flow, to live within cash flow and not to outspend no matter what. I think it would be very hard for a CEO to go to a board and say, I'd like to double my rig count today in response to the, the price volatility over the past 90 days. Continental tried that in the middle of February. They increased their capex by 10 to 15 percent this year versus last year, and the stock fell 10 percent. Um, if you are looking for leading indicators that the market thinks that public oil and gas companies are going to increase rig count, you can look at the relative performance of Halliburton and Schlumberger versus the oil and gas companies over the past three months. They've underperformed. And I would say the second thing is that there is a question of capacity in terms of how quickly we can increase rig count. And the the thing to know about that is that, you know, in the Permian and West Texas, we're running at 90% of frack fleet capacity across the U.S. We're running at 82% of frack fleet capacity. So it will, it will take time for us to be able to ramp. And, and then the last thing I would say is, you know, permits are up 80, uh, up 45% versus a year ago, um, permits to drill new wells. So the industry can increase production and there's a question of will. And then there's a question of does it matter? Because there's absolutely no way we can replace 10 million barrels a day of uh, Russian crude. Um, yeah. No one in the world can. And on the natural gas side, we can increase, of course, we can increase natural gas production. The U.S. is in Saudi Arabia of natural gas, but we can't get it to Europe right now. And that will be true for about 36 months. E- even if one tenth of Russian oil is taken offline, caught a million barrels a day, Kate, I mean, that's a big ask for the United States. The world, of course, also looking at Saudi and UAE and OPEC as well. They've kind of remained silent on this. I mean, it seems easy to make a case for $125 or $150 oil like a lot of the Wall Street firms are now doing. Is there a case for lower oil? Let's say that something were to, quote, happen to Mr. Putin, as maybe the world is all rooting for right now, if you catch my drift, that this war simply ends. Uh, Is there a case for a dramatic drop at any point in oil when and it will end when this war ends or no? Well, you can see that the political risk premium is back into uh, into the commodity. And I would say that there, you know, 10 million barrels a day is unreplaceable. Saudi and OPEC plus, which includes Russia, spare capacity is allegedly 5 million barrels a day. But we should be very, very afraid of that because that 5 million barrels a day is a big question mark. It it represents, in theory, 5 percent of global supply. But the OPEC plus contingent underproduced 700,000 barrels a day in January, which is you know, almost 1% of global production. So we are in a situation that now we're talking about energy sovereignty and security of supply and concerns around spare capacity. We haven't had those concerns for 10 years. And so in, in the context of what this means, it looks like we probably are talking now about Iranian crude because there's absolutely no other crude that we could quickly bring on the market if we could bring Iranian crude on. Yeah. And by the way, there is a lot of chatter that there could be some sort of Iran nuclear deal done and maybe over this weekend and that some of that may come back to market. But it's a lot to make up. Kate Richard of Warwick Energy, we really appreciate your time. Kate, thank you. Have a great weekend. All right, let's get now over to Randy Gibbons with the shipping angle of this war here. Randy, you know, the one thing I know about ships 
is that they use a ton of fuel. It's called they call it bunker. It's really kind of a kind of a sludgy diesel blend. I've got to imagine that the cost of that fuel has gone up. And when you're talking about what tens of thousands of gallons per ship on an already tight market, even before this war occurred, this has got to be incredibly inflationary for the shippers. Absolutely, Brian. Hey, thanks again for having me. And quickly, before I start on the tanker bunker market, we here at Jeffrey's very supportive of Ukraine, raised $14 million for humanitarian aid. I personally, obviously, am praying for peace in the region. But as you mentioned, certainly a lot of impacts on tanker. Rates are surging, especially in the Black Sea. Bunker fuel prices, what propels the tankers, that's at an all-time high. So clearly, you have seen a massive impact on rates, both from a dislocation demand component, coupled with the supply impact, about 4 to 6% of the global fleet is now untouchable due to these sanctions. And then third, as you mentioned, the cost of actually operating and moving the ships with the bunker fuel prices now at $800, $850 per ton when it was 400 a year ago, that is certainly adding a lot of fuel to the fire when it comes to rates. But we're also taking Russian oil offline. In fact, yesterday, Randy, we showed that the eight ships, probably the last eight for a while, that are still on their way to America loaded with Russian oil. That's probably the end of it, at least until these sanctions end, though. So how do we balance out the idea that Russian oil is going to be taken offline, but a bunch of Russian-related ships are going to be taken offline? Yep. So what's going to have to happen is you're going to need to replace those barrels from further away distances, either here in the U.S. or from the Arabian Gulf, which also expands your ton mile demand, making it longer and more difficult to get the same amount of barrels from Russia now from the U.S. to Western Europe. So that also further increases tanker rates. Are there any companies that are better positioned to weather this uh, literal storm than others? Yeah, absolutely. And we're used to seeing a lot of these geopolitical risks. We were on a year and a half ago with the whole missiles attacking vessels in the street of Hormuz. You know, in, in Matthew 24, we talk about wars and rumors of wars, but don't be troubled. You know, this too will pass. So when it comes to tankers, there's really three picks that we are most bullish on with this strong rate environment. First is Euronav, ticker EURN. Second is International Seaways, ticker INSW. And third is TK Tankers, ticker TNK. All of them have substantial Suez Max and Aframax exposure. And those are the types of ships that you've seen rates go up three, four, five X just in the last few weeks. Yeah, we're going to leave it there. But, Randy, you, you get up at four o'clock in the morning in Houston, and we certainly appreciate it. And I know that you sent me a picture last time you were on. You recorded the show of a very special young lady who also apparently watches CNBC, and I want to give you a moment to send a message to her because we are human beings. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, my oldest daughter uh, turns three today. So happy birthday, Finley. Daddy loves you a lot. And uh, I'll see you when you wake up. Yeah, hopefully she's not up right now, Randy, because otherwise you're going to even have a longer day. Randy <laughs> Gibbons of Jeffries, we appreciate your views and the fact that you've gotten up somewhere in the middle of the night. Randy, thank you. And happy birthday to Finley. All right, coming up, your exclusive weekly look at the biggest buys by Company Insiders. And this week's theme, 
buying on weakness and buying on the consumer. There's a big trend here in these names. And you'll hear it exclusively coming up. Plus, Tom Porcelli of RBC on the monthly jobs number. Dow futures down 230, and we are back right after this. Welcome back. It is time now for your weekly exclusive insider buying segment where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level executives, by the way, with their own money. These aren't buybacks. These are executives buying their stock. And the data, as always, comes to our thanks to Insider Score Verity Platform. And as always, we are counting you down five to one. And this week is kind of unique in a way because see if you can spot a trend. I mean, I just gave it away ahead of the break anyway, right? Markets have also been weak, and so it's kind of interesting to see who's buying on this weakness. Well, now we know, so let's go. Fifth most insider buying this week is Haynes Brands, the CEO with a $501,000 buy. That's his first since joining the company. That stock down 15% this year. Stock four, Sherwin-Williams, a $773,000 combined buy by the CEO and CFO. It's a big reversal. They were both net sellers last year, sold last year, made some money, using some of that money to buy the stock now. Number three, Rent-A-Center, the CEO buying just over a million bucks worth. And like Haynes, this is the CEO's first ever insider buy going all the way back to 2003. Wow. Stock number two, Parsons Corp, a $1.3 million buy by the CFO. He has been an aggressive buyer since the company's IPO three years ago, and this is one of the few stocks on our list that is actually higher year to date. And the most insider buying this week is another first of sorts. It is at carpet and flooring maker Mohawk Industries and a $1.35 million buy by the CEO. It is his first transaction since 2008. It is also his largest transaction ever. Now, Mohawk has been hit hard, down 40% from its 52-week high. So maybe the CEO thinks the stock has fallen too far. We're going to find out. So there you go. Your top five insider buys of the week. Underwear, paint, renting couches, carpet. Putting it another way, this is a very consumer-oriented insider buying week outside of Parsons. Maybe a sign of some optimism around consumer spending. And a reminder, we do this almost every Friday except for earnings season. And it's a segment you'll only see here on WEX and by the way, on CNBC Pro, and if you haven't signed up today, and you can also check out our 14-minute-long interview with Bill Gross. I want to hear that. All right, on deck. As if markets were not juggling enough already, we are also gearing up for the monthly jobs number. Coming out at 8.30, RBC's Tom Porcelli is here. What it might all mean for the Fed's rate hike strategy. General reminder, check out our podcast as well, available on all the major platforms. We are seeing Dow futures off six-tenths of 1%. Oil slightly higher from the close, and we are back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back. We not only are we dealing with inflation, Putin's war in Ukraine, but also we got the monthly jobs number coming out at eight thirty. Economists expecting the report to show that U.S. employers added about four hundred forty thousand jobs last month. This will be the final monthly data number before the Fed's March sixteenth rate hike decision. Joining us now. RBC Chief U.S. Economist Tom Porcelli. Tom, it's good to have you back on. Uh, where do you Thanks, come Brett. in? What are your expectations for that number today? 
Yeah, I, you know, we're we're not very different than that number you flashed up there. I think you said consensus four forty. I think we're you know we're closer to four hundred uh, for whatever that's worth. I don't think a big difference. You know, look, I, I think um, the, the 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 bigger part of the conversation is does this number really even matter as it relates to Fed policy? And I think the answer is is no. I mean, I, I don't know how much the payroll report matters going forward. It's not just this number. I mean, if the the Fed is clearly far more focused on inflation at this point, so it's probably a pretty reasonable argument that next week's inflation report matters more than, than, than this payroll report. But I think the undertones of this report will certainly show that the labor market remains in, in really very rock solid shape, um, uh, you know, c- continuing to sort of, um, you know, claw back a number of folks that have been sitting on the sidelines. Um, and, you know, for now, I stress for now, keeping wage pressure is pretty elevated. I think that dynamic could change as the year progresses. Um, but, but again, I think it's a slightly moot point at this, at this stage, given the fact that, we're, you know, we're now yeah. well easily within full employment. Yeah, and you said it. I didn't, by the way, Tom. And I, you know, I was kidding because I kind of said it. You don't want to throw cold water on the coverage. Uh, it's going to be a big part, no doubt, of <laughs> yeah, coverage coming forward. About that. <laughs> but, it, but listen, let's be let's be honest with the audience. I mean, that's our job, right? Be truthful and honest with the audience, which is that it probably doesn't matter at all. I mean, and I say it not because jobs don't matter, but because inflation is so damp, darn, excuse me, hot yeah. right now outside of the job market, that that's where the Fed is going to focus. They've got their dual mandate, right? right? Inflation and maximizing employment. Employment, to your point, if you want a job, you can get it. Period. End of story in America right now. But they can't do much about $110 oil. No, no. But by the way, that's a really important point. They can't do anything about energy prices, right? I mean, that that's, you know, monetary policy is a sort of a blunt tool, as, they, as, as we love to say. And, um, you know... The, Look, I could see a dynamic as the year progresses, where in, in particularly over the sort of the next couple of months, where you still have an acceleration in headline inflation, but you actually have some stabilization and even slowing in core inflation. And that puts the Fed in a really tricky spot because at the end of the day, you know, really core inflation is, is, is really what matters most, right? I mean, it's, you know, sort of, you know, it's underlying inflation. It's the thing that the Fed can control. But the, the Fed, because they're so far behind the curve right now, um, and because they, you know, they're really trying to earn back some inflation fighting credibility, you could see a dynamic where they're really much more yeah. focused on headline inflation, which, again, is an irony because there's not much they can do about the energy side of that. Yeah, and I agree the Fed behind the curve. In fact, I mean, they blew it. Let's just be perfectly clear. Now, to be yeah. fair, it wasn't their fault that Congress threw trillions of dollars at the pandemic and lockdowns, not realizing that the consumer might react in a different way than they did. So is there any way the Fed can put out the inflation fire without destroying the House? Well, I think it's going to be tricky. Um, uh, You know, I think if they're very focused on inflation and inflation is going to remain elevated for at least the next handful of months, which is what we expect before it does start to slow down, you know, it really depends how aggressive they get. If they get very aggressive here, then then, yeah, I think they can actually cause some some damage um, in in, uh, sort of in the months to come. But, uh, you know, you, look, you heard it the other day, too. I mean, when was, I, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've never heard a Fed official or Fed, uh, Fed chair say exactly what was going to happen at the coming meeting. I mean, he effectively preempted the next meeting. So, um, you know, it sounds like they don't want to get aggressive here. Um, but they, as he said, they've reserved the right yeah. to get aggressive. But as I said on your airwaves not too long ago, I just think they need a little bit of patience because it does seem to us that inflationary pressure is going to start to slow down yeah. as the year progresses. And I think that patience could be rewarded for them. Yeah. 
Tom Porcelli, well, very well said on so much. Never had to deal with an $8 trillion balance sheet as well. Tom, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, just very quickly, folks, before we wrap up Worldwide Exchange here, just a reminder that we're going to be in Houston Monday and Tuesday. Zero Week Conference, huge conference. Got about 8, 10, 12, I don't know, CEOs in oil, gas, U.S. government officials, probably some surprise guests as well. Perfect time for it. Tune in Monday and Tuesday. We will be live in Houston Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a fantastic and safe weekend. We will see you here on Monday. Take care. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.